In his lifetime, Aldous Huxley published 24 volumes of non-fiction work, including 10 novels, six gatherings of short fiction, another six volumes of original poetry, as well as numerous lectures and essays, but one novel in particular still remains his most famous work. Brave New World is a terrifying look at a world in which science and technology are used by powerful rulers to control the masses, making them into mindless automatons. Set in the future yet concerned with the present, it is filled with comic and satiric elements that make readers laugh even as they witness the erosion of the human spirit. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, rebels, and the future. I'm your host, Jason Nemoore Hardin, and on this episode, we explore one of the most important dystopian novels ever written, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Writers write to influence their readers, their preachers, their auditors, but always, at bottom, to be more themselves." End quote. Aldous Leonard Huxley was born in Godalming, Surrey, England on July 26, 1894 as the third son of writer and schoolmaster Leonard Huxley, who edited the Cornhill Magazine, and Julia Arnold, who founded Pryor's Field School. Julia was the niece of poet and critic Matthew Arnold and the sister of Mrs. Humphrey Ward. Named after a character from one of her sister's novels, Julia would name her third son, Aldous. Aldous would suffer from three heavy blows of fate in his childhood. At age 14 in 1908, his beloved mother would die of cancer. Three years later, he lost his eyesight through keratitis punctata, rendering him virtually blind for almost one and a half years, effectively ending his dreams about becoming a doctor. His sight would remain badly impaired for decades following this. Then finally, the third blow of fate would come in 1914, when his favorite brother, Trevenin, committed suicide after years of deep depression. Backtracking just a bit, there was a promising moment in the year 1911 when he was 17 years old. This is when he began taking writing seriously, deciding that he would prosper in the field. Now, years would go by after this decisive moment, landing him in the midst of 1919, when after a number of odd jobs, he turned to literary journalism to make a living. By this time, he had a family to support. That same year, he married a young woman from Belgium named Maria Nice. Their only child, Matthew, was born the following year. Aldous had the misfortune of suffering quite severely from excessive overwork around this time, but after the success of his first novel, Chrome Yellow, in 1921, he was able to settle down to the life of a writer. The Huxleys loved traveling, evidenced by the fact that from 1923 onwards, they lived in part in Italy and then near Paris, before buying a house in Saint-Louis-sur-Mer in Provence, France in 1930. It was here, in May 1931, that Aldous Huxley would begin to write Brave New World. 
By the time he sat down to write his fifth novel, he was already a preeminent figure in the vanguard of English intellectual and literary culture. His name alone conveyed a mood of ironic social and literary criticism, reflecting his talent for propounding shocking new ideas while attacking works and theories he considered hopelessly outdated. His early biting satirical novels, including Chrome Yellow, Antic Hay, Those Barren Leaves, and Point Counterpoint, were well received by many of the cynical post-World War I crowd, although in the mid-1930s, librarians were still ready to ban his books. Within a span of four months, from May to August 1931, he would write the novel, but the seeds of the concepts and themes had been sown much earlier. As early as in the 1920s, he recognized limits to industrial society, to mass production and mass consumption, as well as the ecological limits to growth. He chastised a society which could only conceive progress in terms of quantity of production and waste and not in terms of quality of living, and he maintained that such a system inevitably produced the conditions for its own collapse, stating, We are rich because we are living on our capital. The coal, the oil, the nitre, the phosphates which we are so recklessly using can never be replaced. When the supplies are exhausted, men will have to do without. Our prosperity has been achieved at the expense of our children. We are living on our cosmic capital. When that capital is exhausted, mankind will be bankrupt. Nothing could be more obvious. He set Brave New World in the year 2540 A.D., or, as he called it, 632 after Ford, the era that began with the introduction of our Ford's first Model T in 1908. But although Brave New World is set in the future, his novel is, as George Orwell would observe, a brilliant caricature of the present in which he only uses the lens of future time in order to discover better the latent diseases of the here and now. Huxley was convinced that one of the biggest problems in the modern world was that people were willingly giving up their freedom and their essential humanity to governmental control. Since loss of freedom is also the issue that George Orwell explores in 1984, which you can learn more about on episode 6 of House of Words, the two novels have often been compared. In Brave New World, Huxley's characters willingly give up their freedom, whereas in Orwell's society, the masses are coerced into obedience and conformity through a police state run by a violent dictator called Big Brother. Although he felt Orwell's novel was profoundly important, he thought his own view of world control was a more accurate prophecy of the future, stating, My own belief is that the ruling oligarchy will find less arduous and wasteful ways of governing and of satisfying its lust for power, and that these ways will resemble those which I described in Brave New World. His vision that people would be controlled through conditioning and learn to love servitude would indeed seem much more in line with what has actually happened in the western part of the world in the second half of the 20th century. On the contrary, Orwell's view of a ruling class maintaining control through violence and imprisonment has been the prevailing method in non-western countries in the 20th century. As such, both works offer frightening predictions of mindless masses controlled by a powerful few, trends that continue today. 
In his 1946 foreword to Brave New World, Huxley stated that the theme of Brave New World is not the advancement of science as such, it is the advancement of science as it affects human individuals. He elaborated on this idea by explaining that he was concerned only with the sciences of life, biology, physiology, and psychology, because they can result in a really revolutionary revolution that can take place in the souls and flesh of human beings. The novel is based on his premise that a really efficient totalitarian state would be one in which the all-powerful executive of political bosses and their army of managers control a population of slaves who do not have to be coerced because they love their servitude. He divides his theme into two parts. First, he details how governments can design and control their subjects. Second, he analyzes whether these measures bring real happiness to the people. As he makes clear, this new world order is not utopia, because such a world must give up not only war, but also spiritual conflicts of any kind, not only superstition, but also religion, not only literary criticism, but also great creative art of whatever kind, not only economic chaos, but also all the beauty of the old traditional things, not only the hard and ugly parts of ethics, but the tender and beautiful parts too. He said retrospectively in 1958, in Brave New World, non-stop distractions of the most fascinating nature are deliberately used as instruments of policy for the purpose of preventing people from paying too much attention to the realities of the social and political situation. In this world so very similar to ours, every man, woman, and child is compelled to consume a certain amount each year in the interest of industry. This society relies on people's sheep-like ascent rather than on force. Their stupendous immaturity makes them perfect subjects and is therefore the ultimate safeguard of the stability of the existing social order. And social stability is, after all, the ultimate good in this society. The real reason, however, for the whole construct of this society is economic. Whether human beings are molded to be perfect miners and steel workers, or whether they are conditioned to love only what costs money, not nature and flowers, for example, it is both in the sphere of production and in the sphere of consumption that this is being done on grounds of high economic policy. In essence, Brave New World is the perfected consumer society. Although the advancement of science as it affects human beings is Huxley's primary theme, he includes several minor themes as well. One is people's yearning to conform in order to be accepted by others. Hardly anyone raised in the Fortean society finds fault with doing and thinking the same as everyone else. Another more minor theme is the concern about people's undue respect for science and technology and their dismissal of the arts and humanities. In the Brave New World Society, science and technology become the religion. That sounds familiar. But anyway, the Fortians have indeed gained many benefits from technology. More pleasures, greater comforts, healthier lives, but as a result, they have lost imagination. They are no longer resourceful or creative because they have given up the arts, humanities, and religion. Therefore, the whole person no longer exists.
novel appeared in February 1932. It was a huge financial success. Readers in England eagerly bought 13,000 copies in 1932 and followed that up with 10,000 copies the following year. However, readers in the USA were not as excited demonstrated by their buying fewer than 3,000 copies during the first year. In general, they found the book too pessimistic. Now, despite its popular appeal in Great Britain, most literary critics did not enthusiastically embrace the novel. They disapproved of it both as a work of art, finding it weak in plot and characterization, shallow, mechanical in structure, and monotonous in tone. Of course, not all professional critics were negative. For example, the New York Times reviewer found the novel an entertaining satire, but not a work to be taken as a serious warning for the future, writing that it is a little difficult to take alarm since it would only take one rebellious outsider to shake the mechanized world to the foundations. Like the Times, the nation also found the work successful as a novel and as a satire, but did not think that Mr. Huxley's central problem would become a real problem based on the amount of suffering and chaos in the world. <laughs> I'll leave that to you to decide whether or not you feel we have something to worry about or learn from the novel. Again, Despite the novel's popularity with readers, a number of censors have found Brave New World a dangerous work because of its promotion of drugs, sexual promiscuity, and suicide, as well as its anti-religious and anti-family sentiments. Case in point, the book was immediately banned in Ireland upon its publication in 1932. On beginning in the 1980s, the novel has been frequently challenged in the United States. As a matter of fact, in 1980, it was removed from a classroom in Miller, Missouri. Eight years later, its validity as required reading was questioned at a high school in Yukon, Oklahoma, because of its language and moral content. Then, in 1993, the Corona Norco California Unified School District felt that it centered around negative activity. Their challenge against the book was unsuccessful. However, in the year 2000, it was successfully challenged and removed from the Foley, Alabama High School Library when a parent complained that its characters showed contempt for religion, marriage, and the family. In yet another case in 2003, parents in the South Texas Independent School District in Mercedes, Texas, objected to the adult themes, sexuality, drugs, and suicide. Although the school board did not remove the book, it did require principals to offer an alternative to the controversial book. Naturally, we at House of Words encourage you to seek out literature that provokes such reactions. In the words of Sage Francis, don't let anybody protect your ears. It's best that you hear what they don't want you to hear. With that, we have come to the conclusion of yet another episode. And as usual, we will end with a quote from the provocative, and some would argue, prophetic author himself. My fate cannot be mastered. It can only be collaborated with and thereby, to some extent, directed. Nor am I the captain of my soul. I am only its noisiest passenger. End quote. Thank you for listening. 
I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemoore Hardin. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason Nemoore Harden. And music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason Nemoore Harden. <laughs>